0: So today we're in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 15. And the title, which you can see on your worship guide, is Don't Look Back. Before we get into that, what I want to do is, um, two weeks ago we were looking at Ephesians 6, and at the end of it I mentioned sort of a problem that I had with the text that I was sort of had to wrestle through, and I wanted to kind of explain that. So I'm going to do that real quick before getting into the rest of this because I think it's, it's relevant and it's important to do because what happens in, in Ephesians 6, Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But then in Romans, throughout like 6 and 7 and 8, what Paul's talking about is wrestling with the flesh. Like in Romans 7.23 when he says, I see a different law in, my, in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making it making me a prisoner of the law of sin. And so it's clear from Romans there's a battle going on in our flesh. And we are part of that battle and our flesh is waging war on us. Since the time we've been set free from sin, it wants to get us back, basically. But how do we reconcile that with what Paul said in Ephesians 6 when he says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. I'm going to give you a brief answer. And if you want more information, I did write up a couple of pages on this. I don't want to take up too much time with it, though. So just briefly, I'll just give you a couple of ideas. Um, in Ephesians, Paul's primarily talking about opposition from the outside, whether that's persecution or that's um, tribulation um, trials where the enemy is coming against you with his forces. And, and so what Paul is saying is, you know, it, if you're going through a persecution or a spiritual warfare uh, that's, that's not a battle that's fought in flesh and blood. And so, like, just for example, Ephesians 6, he says things like, stand firm against the schemes of the devil, verse 11, resist the evil day, verse 13, extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, verse 16. So in that context, he's saying, we don't struggle against flesh and blood when we have persecution or when we have spiritual warfare happening around us. And even if that spiritual warfare takes on the form of a person who's coming against you, who's opposing you, or he's persecuting you, or he's saying negative things about you, Paul's saying, recognizing that situation there's something bigger going on in the spiritual realm. This isn't a battle against flesh and blood. That's what he's saying there. But in Romans, he's saying something different. He says things like, our old self was crucified, the body of sin was done away with, we're no longer slaves to sin. Don't let sin reign in your body. Sin won't be a master of you anymore. Um, so it's clear Paul in Romans is talking about our internal struggle, which is against the flesh. And so uh, they aren't exactly contradictory statements. We just have to understand in Ephesians when he says we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, he means there's a bigger thing going on in the spiritual world than whatever spiritual warfare is happening, whatever persecution is going on, there's bigger going on than that. Um, That isn't the same as saying we do wrestle against the sin. We do have to fight against it. We aren't suddenly just holy and perfect and never again going to sin when we get saved or never struggle with it. It's not like the moment you profess faith, you're never going to be tempted again and the problem goes away. We still are in this state of we've got to learn how to deny ourselves, deny our flesh. So, I just wanted to point that out. And again, if you want more on that, I can... Email you my notes on it. I tend to write a whole lot. Um, I, I like to say I, I, I like to go around the block to get next door when I write. I think I write faster than I think, and so I, I tend to do that. Um, but anyway, if you want that, I can email it to you. In Romans 6, there are two questions, and Paul's giving answers to those questions. So Paul's been laying this big old defense for a while about different things, and now he's getting into talking about now that we're saved, now that we're believers. What does life look like for a believer? And um, he's talking in, in chapter 5 about different ways we have to change how we think about things, change our perception of things, start to, to recognize what it means to be you know, a new creature and all that, and think of things in a different way. Then coming into chapter 6, verse 1, we saw that he said, What shall we say then? Are we going to continue in sin so grace may increase? That was because he had said in 5 verse 21, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And what Paul meant by that is, it doesn't matter how much you sinned, there's enough grace to cover it. But then he expected sort of like a counter, so what you're saying is I can just keep on sinning because there's already enough grace for all of it. So that was the first question he answered in in the first part of chapter six. But in this answer, as he ended, he kind of concluded his answer to that question. He said in verse 14, sin shall not be master over you, For you're not under law, but under grace. So now he expects another question to be raised based on that statement. You're not under law, but under grace. And so what we're going to pick up today is on that question in verse 15. Before we read that, I'm going to explain what he meant in verse 14. I think it will be helpful. I know I kind of did it last time, but just to remind us we've been gone for a couple of weeks from this text. Um, When Paul said in Romans 6.14... Sin will not be a master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. We know the law, when he talks about the law, he's talking about the Old Testament and the, the laws in the Old Testament. And the laws, they defined God's righteous standard. But they didn't give us power to obey them. They just told us what the expectation was. God's saying, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. But there wasn't anything inherently in those laws that suddenly gave us power to do all of them. Quite the opposite, actually. It was meant to show us our desperation so that even the Old Testament, Paul, remember Romans 3 and 4, is pointing out people like Abraham, who even back then, trying to obey it, had to recognize it's, all, it's by faith. I've got, to, I've got to trust in God because I'm, I can't follow these rules. And um, so it was it was meant to show us our desperate need for a Savior. And so, for example, Romans three nineteen, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so, and then in Romans 5, verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression transgression would increase, which means to be more apparent, to be more extensive, to raise the stakes, to increase our desperation, to cause us to cry out to God, So under the law was a time where we knew what we were expected to do, but we didn't have the power to do it necessarily. Being under grace is different than that. This new covenant we have under grace, something's actually happened to us in the act of faith. We weren't just forgiven. When we put faith in Christ, we didn't just get a clean slate, and now it's the same old us, just with a clean slate, a transformation actually began to happen. A change actually happened. That's what Paul was saying at the beginning of Romans 6. He's saying, if you believe in Christ and you identify with what happened, then your old self died with Christ, and you've been you've begun a new life now in Christ. That old man's done away with. It. And if it that's why I said earlier in the chapter, he who is freed, he who is dead is freed from sin. I think it's verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. So what happened in this new Law, under, being under grace, this new covenant was that we, we weren't just forgiven, we were actually given a new life, and that old self died so that we're not in bondage to sin anymore. We're not under, it's not a master of us, we're not under law, but under grace. So it means um, being united with Christ means that when he died, our old self died with him, and it means that because he rose, we now can walk in newness of life and we're free from sin. The law didn't set us free from sin. It defined the sins. But in Christ, we're actually set free from the sin. So sin is no longer our master. But there's a different way to understand what Paul said, and this is what he sort of expects them to ask the question. Because when he says, we're not under law but under grace... He expects them to ask, so then does that mean I don't have to obey the laws anymore? Does that mean when it says, honor your father and mother, I don't have to because I'm under grace now. I'm not under that anymore. Can we just ignore all the old laws? Is that So he's expecting that question to be raised and that's what he's going to start to answer in the next part of this chapter. So let's read uh, verses 15 through the end and then we'll pray. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh or just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now... Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this text and I ask that you would um, just allow your word to speak for itself and that what is said would be from you and that if any of it is just my own opinion that they wouldn't hear it or that it wouldn't be remembered that it would just fall out in the stutter or a slur, but that you, you could really help these people to follow you better today by giving them a, a, a good, accurate understanding of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Oh. Oh, sorry, I'm thirsty. Okay, so I like when verse 19 he says, I'm speaking in human terms, you all. So he's, he's reminding them, I'm using this whole kind of analogy of slavery, but I'm just using it because it will help you understand it. He's not actually talking about slavery in the sense of like now we're slaves to God with no choice and like all that. Um, but he is using this this um, analogy here. And what he's referring to is something called voluntary servitude or contractual slavery or um, self-sale. So when he says, do you not know in verse 16, it's because this was a common thing in Roman civilization that you could actually – um, voluntarily submit yourself to become a slave. and there are different reasons for it. Um, there's uh, actually an article by a guy, Dr. Morris Silver, professor of economics somewhere. Um, he, he wrote a lot about you know, different kinds of econ, uh, economic societies and Indian civilizations. And so here this article called Contractual Slavery in the Roman Economy, which was helpful for studying this. And he, he said there are like a couple of different reasons why someone might voluntarily do this, one, it might have improved their economic situation. If they were just really poor, it might be better to be in a slave quarters of a rich man's house than to be on the street poor with no money at all. So it might have been a better situation for them. Uh, another option might have been that if they had committed some crime, they could be given an option. You can choose either prison or slavery. So technically it's voluntary, but it's kind of not. Um, that's, that's one option too. Dead. Yeah? Oh. Dead. What did you say? Dead. Like yeah, exactly. Also, he says it might have been a way to get Roman citizenship, even if you're a slave, but you're a Roman citizen slave, That was still maybe a better status than a non-Roman citizen. So there's all different reasons why they might have done it, but uh, the point is they would have known this analogy when he mentioned So he says, do you not know? And so that's why he uses this analogy. Um, the one thing that's interesting about what, what Morris Silver says is that whether or not you became a slave through force or through voluntary to do so, once you were a slave, then you were a slave. There was no longer a different status where you could come and go as you please and keep submitting yourself and keep going away. It was kind of like, if you're going to do this, you're, you're contractually putting yourself, now you are a slave, so the final state was the same. and That will be important in a moment. Um, and that's why, uh, so Paul uses this metaphor to say that when you sin, you're actually voluntarily declaring sin to be your master, that's what Paul's doing. Now Like when now you're saved and you're free from sin. If you continue to just allow yourself to sin over and over again, what you're saying spiritually, what you're saying to God, what you're saying to your flesh is like, I am voluntarily giving myself back to my sin to be a slave to my sin. That's why I said in verse 14, Sin shall not be your master. We've been set free from that. And so now, you want to volunteer to be a slave again? Is that what you really want? So that's kind of how he begins answering this question of shall we just keep sinning? If we're not under law but under grace if now we're under grace there's enough grace to cover it all can I just keep sinning? He's like no because what you're doing is you're, you're then taking yourself out of God's care and you're giving yourself back to sin and saying sin's my master again. Do you really want that? So in verse 17 but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin you became obedient to the, to the heart or from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, to be a Christian is to be a voluntary slave of righteousness. Is what Paul is saying in this analogy. Um, and remember, whether voluntary or forced, the final state is a slave, one who has a master. And so when we are believers and we're following Christ, he says here in verse 17, we're becoming obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. And then verse eighteen, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And so it is important that he talks about it in this way. Um, we're we're committing ourselves. We're becoming slaves of right. We're serving righteousness now. We have a new. We're a new creation. We're a new life, and our desire should be to serve our new master. And he talks about things like being obedient to the form of teaching which you were committed. Which teaching is he talking about? The teaching of the apostles. Remember, the apostles were the ones that were commissioned by Jesus to go into the world and share the gospel. And they planted churches, and they raised up elders, and they baptized people, and they laid the foundation of the churches. They were the ones who walked with Jesus and heard from his own mouth what he said. And so they spread that around. So that's why it says in Acts 2.42, they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what the early church did, is they devoted themselves to the teaching. That's what he's saying here. You're no longer a slave to sin. Instead of that, now you became obedient to the teaching of the apostles. And you became a slave to righteousness. It's important to think about it that way because sometimes we we want to think we're following Christ, but then we want to pick and choose which teachings we prefer. And so what, what it means to be a student and a follower of Christ is to start trying, even though it's hard sometimes, trying to Read all of the teaching and ask God to help us to understand it because we want to be faithful. That's, you know, the reason why we want to know what the Bible says is primarily so we can be faithful to our master. All right, so again, verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms. He reminds us um, because of the weakness of your flesh. And he says, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness before, resulting in further lawlessness... Now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, meaning when you were not saved, God wasn't your master. So he didn't have you you weren't you weren't obeying him, you weren't obeying his laws, you weren't really following him, you were following yourself and you were following your sin and that was your master. And so you, you were in a sense free. But now that you're saved and you're his, he's now your master. And I love, um, oh, I'm sorry, I actually skipped a page ahead. Must have done two pages instead of one when I turned. Yeah, so we're on verse 22. Sorry about that. And he says in verse 22, So now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you receive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift. No, I'm still on the wrong page. I'm sorry. What is happening? What page are we on, guys? You have my notes, don't you? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm on page 4. Here we go. I apologize. Verse 21, What benefit are you then deriving from the things that you are now ashamed, for the outcome of the things is death? So, um, going back to the question that started this thing, when they were like, can we just keep sinning? Because there's enough grace there, clearly, so let's do whatever we want. He's like, do you really want to go back there? I remember my first um, my first wide margin Bible. I remember actually this is one of those verses for me. I remember sitting on a park bench reading this and underlining that verse like, "What benefit are you receiving from the things from which you are now ashamed?" That is like that's really powerful to think about when you've when you become a Christian and you've lived in the world and you know what things you did back then, the things that you are now ashamed of like, what benefit did you receive? Now you're ashamed of those things. And you can see the outcome now. They lead to death. What benefit is there in those things? And so that's what he's saying. It's like, do you really want to go there? Do you want to ask me, can I keep sinning? Like, don't you remember what it was like when you were there? Don't you remember when you hit rock bottom and you sensed your desperation for God? Don't you remember all that? You want to just give all that up? Don't you remember what, what that stuff leads to? It leads to death. So how do you look back on the days before you were surrendered to Christ? I've heard some people that kind of talk about those days like glory days. Oh boy, you know, that I was saved. I I used to be a rebel. This is the kind of thing I used to do. And they kind of like brag about it almost. As if they're kind of proud of how crazy they were. Um, We shouldn't look back on our time before Christ and boast about our sins. There's a problem there if we do that. There's, There's a problem in our understanding of the gospel if we look back on our former days and we take pride in how crazy we were before we were saved and we brag about the things we used to do. That we haven't understood the gospel fully if we do that. We should look back and see how those things lead to death. There's nothing for us there. And so then, now on the right page, verse 22, so then, on the contrary to that, he says in verse 22, now having been freed from all that, from sin and enslaved, now you're enslaved to God, now your benefit is resulting in sanctification, the outcome of eternal life, so he's like, looking forward, just look at the benefits we have under grace. And this kind of way Paul's talking sort of reminds me of that Robert Frost poem that I'm sure we all know where it ends with two roads diverged in a wood and I, looked, I took the one less traveled by and that's made all the difference. And so Paul's kind of like saying, you can look down one road and you can see where it leads, and it leads to death, and it leads to sin, and it leads to enslavement, and and, you know, like that's one road. And then you can see this road, and you can see where it leads, and it leads to sanctification, and it leads to eternal life. Like, do you really want to go back onto this one after you saw how desperate you were, and you came over here? You you want to go back there? So that's his argument this week for why we can't just keep sinning, even though there's enough grace for us. We shouldn't have that mentality. Yes, if you sin today, God's going to forgive you. That's what it says, First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And he says it to the church to save people, saying, if you still sin, you can confess, you can be forgiven. But don't use that as an excuse to keep sinning. Paul's like, don't you realize where you came from? Do you want to be a slave to sin again? Don't you remember that path and where it led? You're over here now. You've got newness of life. You've got sanctification. You've got righteousness. You've got, you know God personally. Like, And you see where it ends. It ends in eternal life and joy forever. Stay over here. So, um, the last thing I want to say about this, this is going to come a couple of times in the next couple of chapters, is that the fight against sin and the fight against temptation isn't, a direct fight. I'm going to mention it more as we get into Romans 7, I think it's for sure, but when Paul talks about things like his body's waging war against his mind, you can't use your body to fight against your body. It's not going to really work. It's not a physical battle in that sense. Um, we see this in Romans 8. The way Paul ends up fighting against his flesh is by setting his mind on the spirit, Romans 8, 5, which is to say he's not directly fighting it back against his flesh, just going like, no, I'm not going to get mad today. I'm not going to get mad today. I'm not going to get mad today over and over again. He's not just doing that. He's setting his mind somewhere else. And that's, I think, the whole clue to, to temptation to sin is to not try to fight it directly just by saying no and trying to do it in your own strength, but instead to set your mind somewhere else. That's what Colossians 3 says, set your mind on things above. 2 Corinthians 3, Behold in the glory of the Lord we're being transformed. In Romans 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I say this because, in my experience, and also what I see in the Bible, is that the process of sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ, the process of not wanting to sin anymore, and learning how to fight against temptation, is not something that we just get better at on our own, because we just, it's like, like like a physical muscle we're building. Instead, what happens is, we pursue God. We seek God directly and He begins to give us desires. We begin to be transformed by Him. As we're studying the Word and as we're praying and we're praying and the Spirit with the power of God, what's happening is that God is beginning to change us and that also entails our desires to where we begin to desire to sin less and we desire Him more. So it's not a direct fight. And so, when when you talk about temptation, you talk about sin in different ways, just remember that. Remember that instead of just trying to not do the thing you're tempted by, instead of just saying, I'm not going to do that right now, say, I'm going to chase after God as hard as I can today. I'm going to be proactive about it, read my Bible today. I'm going to pray to God today. I'm going to get in His Word. I'm going to get into fellowship. Because what's happening is that you're actually being changed on the inside out in that process. So it's an indirect fight. Instead of fighting back directly, we fight back by pursuing God. Only when we see Him as supremely valuable more than anything else are we going to ever want Him more than anything. And that's the key. Temptation is all about desire. What do you want most? What are your deepest desires? What what is that thing you want? If you got alone with yourself in a closet and close your eyes and ask yourself, what do you want more than anything else? That's the whole point when you can find that in that place as God that you want Him more than anything else, then chase that. And you'll find that along the way when temptation comes you, will be like, that's not even a temptation anymore because I want God so much. And I'll just close with uh, Psalm 1611. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Pray. Thank you, God, for this uh, teaching. Thank you for your word. I pray you would help us all to desire you more than anything and to desire to learn about you accurately from your word more than anything so that we can chase after the true and living God, whom we worship in spirit and truth, and that our desire for you would be increasing. I pray that every day our desire for you, our desire to know you, and to be known by you and to walk uprightly with you, that desire would be increasing every day, and that our desire for sin and temptation and, and greed and, and all the things we want in this life, those would be diminishing in comparison to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time, and now and forever. Amen.